This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. 10,000 employees at the Department of Veterans Affairs are currently unable to work because of COVID-19. As a result, the Biden administration is pressing pause on its recommendations to modernize and realign the department. VA Secretary Dennis McDonough is delaying the announcement of recommendations until the VA workforce has been made fully aware of the updates. The administration is finalizing its first contracts for 500,000 at-home COVID test kits. USPS will be responsible for shipping out the kits once the distribution plans are finalized. The funding for these tests comes from the American Rescue Plan Act. NBC reports that those half a billion tests could still take months to reach Americans. President Biden has a new nominee for the Federal Emergency Management Agency. The White House has picked Alice Hill to be the Deputy Administrator for Resilience at FEMA. Hill previously served as a special assistant during the Obama administration. She has also worked as senior director for resilience policy on the National Security Council staff. During a previous role at DHS, Hill created the first ever climate adaptation plan for the department. Maintaining American tech leadership will require planning. That includes having a national strategy for the development of 6G technology, even though it's still years away. Martin Rasser is director of the Technology and National Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. Martin, welcome to the program. Great to be here. Thank you. So why are we talking about 6G when tech companies are just now rolling out 5G and 6G is not going to come out until like 2030? Well, we have to think about 6G as critical infrastructure. And the fact is that a lot of the initial research and development for 6G is taking place right now, including in China. So we have to have a proactive and prudent approach to these issues early on. So ultimately, we want to avoid a lot of the issues that we faced with the rollout of 5G. There's a lot of security concerns associated with that, and we can get ahead of these issues if we act now. I want to ask you about that. You mentioned China, and they've become a major player in 5G. And your report says that that poses a national and economic security risk. How, how is that? Well, if you consider how fundamentally important communications networks are to everything we do, right? It's the day-to-day functioning of our society. It's how our military operates all around the world. Who controls that infrastructure really sets the course for the rest of the century. That's why it's so fundamentally important that those networks are secure and resilient. So let's say China controls that infrastructure. Mm. What, what could happen as a result? Well. Ultimately, there's a lot of concerns, of course, about things like espionage, but the real issue is they could shut down any country that operates Chinese um, technology on their national networks, and you could put entire societies at risk, and that, that is something that should be a fundamental concern to U.S. policymakers as well as those of our allies and partners. So you recommend that the White House have uh, create a 6G strategy. What do you recommend should be in that strategy? Well, it should be very broad, right? Um, we're talking R&D investments, human capital, standard setting, security, of course. But we also have to think about how we better engage with our allies on making sure that these networks are 
robust and resilient. So who, I mean, who at the White House should take the lead on that kind of a strategy? How, do, how is that done? It should be a combination of the Office of Science and Technology Policy and the National Security Council. The good news is that the Biden administration has created a dual-hatted role. Um, that person, I think Jason Matheny, would be very much front and center in helping to shape what such a strategy should look like. And are they doing that? Yeah. Um, from what I hear from my interactions with senior government officials, those initial discussions are starting to happen. But it's still very much in the embryonic phase. And right now, industry is really in the lead on our 6G, R&D, and so forth. We need our policymakers to step up to the plate. All right. So let's talk about Congress then. What's their role? And you say that they should, that Congress should designate the Department of Commerce a U.S. intelligence community member. Why is that? Well, if you think about how critically important the Department of Commerce is, not just for matters like 6G, but just technology policy across the board, right now they don't have the necessary authorities or sometimes even the right information to make the decisions they need to on matters of economy, trade, and technology. So by becoming a part of the intelligence community, they're much better integrated into the vast data sets that the other agencies have, and they can use that to make more informed decisions. You say that the State Department should spearhead a tech diplomacy campaign. What's tech diplomacy? That's really all about how you engage with allies and partners on making smarter tech policy decisions. A lot of the issue that we're facing with China right now is they have a very compelling technology stack offering in that it's relatively inexpensive compared to other offerings. We need to continue to engage with countries around the world and make sure that they understand the risks associated with deploying Chinese technologies within their national infrastructure. And that has to be an ongoing effort. At the same time, you could use a tech diplomacy campaign to help other countries build out infrastructure that is sustainable. And we can work with our allies to make that happen, provide the technologies, provide loans that aren't predatory in nature, and help build a, an affirmative alternative offering to what authoritarian countries are bringing. And Martin, finally, you know, you talk about working with allies. What's their role in, in this problem, in this process? Well, fundamentally, if you look at the capabilities of allies such as Japan and Finland and Sweden, you know, they really have a lot of the core technologies that you need to build out these networks. So if we effectively cooperate with them, collaborate with them on shaping what 6G looks like, we can focus on issues like security and make sure that uh, our companies are then much more economically competitive because we're dealing with Chinese industrial policy, which is a big challenge. And we have to work together in order to be able to have an effective counterbalance. All right. Well, Martin, we'll leave it at that. Thank you so much for being on the program. Up next, one year after the January 6th attack, what are DHS's intelligence capabilities? Still ahead on Government Matters, we discuss the department's continuing challenges and how to respond to domestic extremism. We'll be right back. The Office of Intelligence and Analysis at DHS is tasked with collecting threat data and sharing it with state and local partners. But the January 6th attack on the Capitol last year showed what many critics say was a failure by that office to warn of that attack and the threat of domestic extremism. 
Ellen Gilmore is a senior reporter at Bloomberg Government. Ellen, welcome. Thanks for having me. So historically, what have been the issues with that office? Um, it's the Office of Intelligence and Analysis. Why has it come under so much criticism? So, right, INA is, is inside DHS. It's actually part of the intelligence community, but it's not a household name the way like the CIA or the FBI is. So it's kind of struggled to find its footing from the, from the start since it was created. Then it had this series of Trump era scandals and intelligence failures that really bruised its reputation. And it's been uh, hard to recover from. They've spent the past year trying to kind of steady the ship uh, in, in INA to make sure it can really operate optimally again. Tell me about some of those things that bruised its reputation. Of course, yeah. So one thing that a lot of folks might remember is during the 2020 protests in Portland, Oregon, uh, there was a situation where federal intelligence officials from INA were creating uh, intelligence reports on U.S. journalists who were writing about the protests, which was seen um, by people inside the department and outside of the department as, you know, really kind of um, getting on First Amendment rights. These people were just covering the protests, writing about the protests. There was an internal investigation. The there inter was a whistleblower report. There was a whistleblower report, an internal investigation, a lot of mudslinging um, related to that, a lot of people accusing, you know, various officials within the department of wrongdoing and of exerting, you know, political influence. And that was just a real stain on, uh, on INA's reputation. So what was the main issue with why they didn't see January 6th coming? What, what, what's the root of that? It's interesting, right, because a lot of January 6th planning was out in the open on social media. Uh, they did see that. Uh, they had trouble kind of differentiating between what was simply First Amendment protected speech, people spouting off on Twitter, um, people saying things they didn't intend to follow through on versus what was, you know, really open plotting um, a threat to the U.S. Capitol, to uh, elected officials. And, you know, they did have some meetings and they shared information, but none of it had uh, the sense of urgency that would have been appropriate for the actual scale of violence that day. There's a new leader that's been nominated um, for DHS's Office of Intelligence and Analysis. What do we know about Ken Weinstein? Ken Weinstein is an alum of the George W. Bush administration. He was in DOJ there. He was um, deputy to uh, Robert Mueller at the FBI, and he worked in the White House. So he's got, you know, sterling credentials. Uh, during the Trump administration, he was in, in uh, private practice at a law firm and remains there and he was a very outspoken critic of President Trump. Uh, he endorsed Joe Biden in the last election uh, because he saw Trump as you know kind of a, a risk to national security. Will domestic extremism be his biggest priority? It's got to be among them. Yeah, I mean, there are so many. The thing about DHS is there are so many things to keep everybody up at night because their job is to protect against all kinds of threats. Domestic extremism is one of the most important issues that INA is working on because INA is really uniquely situated to be looking at those platforms where a lot of this um, domestic extremism kind of is cultivated. Uh, so that's going to be something really important for him. You, you said that it's unique. Explain a little bit more about how it's 
that's unique within the intelligence community? Yeah, well, when you think of you know the FBI, the CIA, a lot of times you think of uh, an FBI investigation that's focused on a specific threat that they're already tracking. They've got you know some body of evidence to merit kind of tracking this person or this group. When you think of um, foreign intelligence agencies, you think of like spies. INA isn't doing any of that. You know, they are looking at this huge mass of public information that's already out there and trying to pick up trends and threats um, that are brewing out there in a way that the FBI simply isn't doing because the FBI is very investigation oriented. They're not taking this big broad view. Um, INA is also the part of the federal government that is most kind of interfacing with state and local law enforcement and other you know state and local homeland security agencies so they're the ones trying to make sure everybody is talking to each other so what are the chances of the nominee being confirmed and what's the timeline I'd say the chances are high. Uh, Ken Weinstein has a hearing this week before the Senate Intelligence Committee. Um, he's got to go through another hearing. He'll have to get voted on by committee, and then he'll go to the floor. So it'll be a matter of, of months, probably. Um, but the chances are high. You know, he's a Bush alum. He's highly respected. Uh, Senator Rob Portman of Ohio, who's a Republican and the top member of the Senate Homeland Security uh, and Governmental Affairs Committee, he has already said he's inclined to support. All right, well, we'll watch it. Ellen, thank you so much for being on the program. Up next, does the government provide excellent, equitable, and secure services to Americans? Still ahead on Government Matters. Customer experience results from 2021 and what they mean for this year. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The White House's executive order on customer experience asks agencies to provide excellent, equitable, and secure federal services to the American taxpayer. A new report by Forrester Research shows that the results of federal customer experience in 2021 have been mixed. Rick Parrish is vice president and principal analyst at Forrester Research. Rick, welcome to the program. Thanks. Good to be here. So there's good news and bad news in the report. Let's start with the good. There have been improvements in the federal agencies and programs that you rated. What were they? Yes, there have been improvements. In fact, uh, when we rate 15 of the largest public-facing U.S. federal agencies and programs, we measure their quality of the customer experience, or, or CX, that they provide on a 100-point scale. And we've seen now two years in a row of improvement up to this year's score of 62.6, a 1.5 improvement last year, 1.6 improvement the year before that. So good news, things are moving up. However, of course, on a 100 point scale, 62.6 still leaves plenty of room for improvement. That's like a D grade if you were uh, getting a grade for that. So, I mean, it, it still lags behind the private sector. What's going on? It does. It lags about 10.7 uh, points behind the private sector, which we also rate on the uh, on the CX index. And of course, there are there are there are legitimate reasons for this. First of all, uh, government organizations around the world have been slower than the public sector to understand the benefits to themselves of improving the quality of the customer experience. And also, government organizations tend to. Uh, be larger. They tend to have some additional regulatory hurdles, although it's easy for government leaders to overstate 
uh, how much their hands are tied by those regulatory hurdles, uh, but some of them do exist. So there are so there are some factors. Things are moving in the right direction. In fact, if the private sector had stayed where it was back in 2015 in terms of CX quality, the federal government would be about middle of the pack right now, above airlines, above health insurers, organizations like that. But of course, many companies in the private sector are getting better, which means that even though the U.S. federal government is improving, it remains behind. So what variables did you measure for this report and how did you decide which variables would be most important to consider? Sure, uh, we measured uh, in essence three sets of variables. First, what we call the three dimensions or three E's of CX quality. The effectiveness of the experience, the ease of the experience, and the emotional quality of the experience. And by the way, our data shows that the emotional quality, that third E, is more important than ease or effectiveness. But so that's one set of variables, ease, effectiveness, emotional quality of the experience. Another set of variables we measured was uh, the drivers of CX quality. We measure 47 different factors, everything from uh, do, does the agency have convenient office hours to is the website easy to navigate, all kinds of things. So we measure that set. And then the third set of variables we measure is, is how the quality of the customer experience evokes certain behaviors in customers. Now, I realize that that's uh, not something we're used to thinking about, but as I said a minute ago, government organizations have to realize that there is a self-interested reason for improving the quality of the customer experience, just like companies in the private sector did years ago. And that self-interest is that it drives mission performance. And so the goal of improving the customer experience in government isn't just to get people to like you, it's to, it's to evoke behaviors that are good for them and good for you. Like for instance, uh, if you have a government organization that has authoritative information about say uh, a pandemic or a federal program or taxes, do you want them going to you for that information? Or do you want them asking random people on social media? You want them asking you. Our data shows that a better customer experience evokes that behavior. Or if you're a regulatory agency, part of your mission success is getting people to do what you ask of them. And again, our data shows that improving the quality of the customer experience in the right ways will drive that behavior. So those are the three sets of variables, variables that understand how good CX is for federal customers, how good CX is for uh, federal agencies and the drivers that make that all possible. You know, agencies are now required to measure equity factors in their customer experience based on the new White House executive order. I want to first ask you about the difference between in the experience between men and women. Uh, sure. It's uh, relatively modest, although real. On, on our 100 point scale, we see uh, about a three point difference, 3.3 points difference between the CX quality for uh, men uh, and women uh, across government on average. Now, there's some agencies where it's a little higher, some where it's a little, little lower, but it's actually the most modest difference uh, of the uh, various demographic categories we studied. There's also uh, big differences in, um, in other things like diversity, age. Um, the older you are, the better experience you have. It, I guess everything starts to deteriorate as you get younger. Uh, yes, in, in fact, in age, that's where we saw the biggest disparity 
uh, in the quality of the federal customer experience on average. So for members of the silent generation, that's people born in 1945 or before, they have the best experience on average with the federal government versus those members of Gen Z, the youngest adult Americans, who have uh, the weakest experience by a difference of 18 points. That's again on our 100 point scale. So an 18 point difference on that scale uh, is, is vast. And there are other differences uh, as well. For instance, uh, race and ethnicity is nearly as large a disparity. It's a 16 point difference between people who identify as white or Caucasian who have the best experiences on average and among the 15 agencies and programs we study, pretty much every single one of them, it's white or Caucasian have the best, uh, versus on average, people who identify as native Hawaiian or Pacific Islander have the weakest experience again, by a gap of on average uh, 16 points. However, there's, there's one other difference I'd, I'd like to point out, which I think is the most surprising difference. Uh, it's not the biggest difference, but it is, I think, the most, the most unexpected. And that is veteran status. There is a nine point gap between when we, when we uh, analyze our data by veteran status, a nine point gap between people who have the best federal customer experiences and the poorest. And the people who have the best are active duty military. But the people who have the poorest are the non-spousal dependents of active duty military or veterans. Essentially, they're adult children, but of course, there are other ways of being a non-spousal dependent of, of, a, of a veteran or active duty service member. But on average, we're talking about their adult kids. And I think that's a, that's, a, that's a surprising finding that I think warrants a lot of research, especially for organizations like TRICARE, the Department of Veterans Affairs, where we see that disparity repeated. The active duty service members have the best experience, their non-spousal dependents have the poorest. All right, well, Rick, we'll have to leave it at that. Thank you so much for being on the program. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And we want to hear from you on LinkedIn. Last week, we posted a survey to ask which government topic is most relevant to your work, technology, defense, management, or acquisition. 39% of respondents said technology. You can vote in this week's poll on our LinkedIn page, Government Matters Media. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years 
have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.